never see each other when we record so this is always a treat because Nora lives in Quebec City and I live in Toronto so we are usually recording over not quite the phone some sort of internet phone <laughs> situation <laughs> so this gets to be more fun so you get to see exactly where all the awkward moments happen that we will later edit out to make it seem seamless yeah and you get to enjoy that because it's funny when it's live. <laughs> That's right. And you can you can see us think, <laughs> which normally I edit out all of those gaps of, of, of especially Sandy thinking. Especially Sandy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Thanks. Reflecting. Uh, yeah. On okay. Hmm. hmm. No, um, <laughs> I, I guess I, I don't. I don't edit. I don't have to edit you at all. No. Nope. See, it's now you're going to notice it's actually me that, uh, that the, it's it's the. It's yes, the ums, <laughs> you know, it's the ums that we edit out. Yeah, this is such a special, uh, it's a special opportunity for us because, um, like, we're also friends, so mm -hmm. we get to hang out, which is sweet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the format tonight is we're going to have uh, a conversation about, well, we'll surprise you like we do every week. And then uh, we'll have an opportunity for Q&A. And so during the Q&A, um, you don't need to identify yourself or anything like that. We'll make sure that it's just your voice on the recording. Unless, unless you, you want to. Unless and then you just let us know. And then we'll, we'll keep it in. Absolutely. And so tonight we are talking about worker struggle, radical action, being inspired for the fight, strikes. Where we're at. We're at 100 years ago. 100 years ago. What it was like 100 years ago. I don't know who was there. Anyone there? And where we need to go, where we want to be, what we need to do to make that happen. That's right. Um, and so maybe to start, uh, it might be useful to just to so you have an idea about what our labor background is, what our organizing background is. I'll give you a bit of an idea of what my experience is with action. Um, I've certainly been, uh, well, I've been a union member for a long time. I'm a member of the Canadian Freelance Union, which is like a weird experiment, fake union kind of thing. But what we do is we're able to write threatening letters on behalf of our members, and it works actually almost every time. <laughs> and so uh, we'll have a member call us and say, you know, I haven't been paid in a week or a month or a year. And we'll write a letter to the member's liking that ranges from please pay me to fuck you, pay me now. And, uh, and we always win. And so that's a really basic radical action that's collective in that there's a couple of us that come together and we, we challenge the, the bosses. But it's not the normal labor relations um, approach. Um, but my first experience with, uh, with strikes was, was um, in my hometown of Georgetown, Ontario. So... Uh, feel free to cheer if you're from, no one's from Georgetown because that place is shit, right? You are? Oh! Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, we, we need to talk. Like, Ontario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're from Georgetown, Ontario. Okay, and, so. And uh, did you love it? Uh, I'm here you're here. You survived she it. She survived it for the tape because we got to make sure this is all on tape. Um, Welcome. <laughs> okay, my mind is fully blown, okay? So, like, if you've never been to this, like, there's, like, some there's a pile of gun and shit between Brampton and, and Guelph. That's Georgetown, right? It's right beside Acton, right? <laughs> With three, you're probably not even born. I don't know, you look so young. <laughs> um, when, I was, uh, when I was really young, I remember the Miracle Mart in Georgetown was on strike, and um, a couple kids in my class went, and their parents worked at the Miracle Mart, and my parents, before our, my, choir, uh, my choir rehearsals, would bring them food. 
And it was just kind of this thing that we didn't really talk about the politics of it, but I remember that really, really well. And it obviously came in handy because my parents were then on full strike at 97 in 1999, and I got a full dose of what being on strike was like as a kid because, well, I mean, we weren't eating super well, but I was partying for two solid weeks while we were on strike in Ontario, which I'm sure was an experience that a lot of people had. You were probably all partying. That's not what <laughs> my family uh, life was like. <laughs> I come from a very strict Jamaican household, and there was no partying to be had during the strike <laughs> that happened at the same time that we were in school. Uh, I was just studying at home the extra books that my parents had bought for the time that we weren't in school. Yeah, so. I mean, so I was watching my friends, like, get high, put on their hockey equipment, and beat each other up. <laughs> I was practicing my penmanship, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is really good, just in case you want to know. It really is actually quite, <laughs> quite outstanding. But my history uh, with like the labor movement or the working world um, comes also as a kid. You know, my I grew up in a soul support family, and my father lost his job uh, when I was quite young, and so knowing what that meant. Um, uh, at a really early age, what that could do to a kid, to a family, what that does to a community, um, and then subsequently got a unionized job and what the shift in, in what that meant for our lives in terms of benefits and, and what we were able to access at that point. I was going to be a track star. I was really good at 100. I was going to go to the Olympics. Sorry, and then what? And then there was a strike and the works rule and um, my career in the athletics was over. Um, so there's that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, I wasn't going to be a track star. I probably wasn't going to go to the Olympics, but I was fourth in Ontario for the 100. I wasn't Sorry, shitty. Really? Yeah. I wasn't shitty. I wasn't shitty. But, you know, when there was no more. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I never told you that? No. Okay, that's so weird. Oh, my God. I thought I was I a all. Usain Bolt is my cousin. Sorry, what? That's real, too. Like that's real. cousin or like cousin? Yeah, my grandmother's last name is Bolt. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Running is in my family. So anyway. that should be monetized in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Jamaican families are really big. <laughs> but so are Italians. Yeah. I don't know. know one. I don't know him. Like oh. my parents called me when he won the 100 and was the fastest man. And they were like, your cousin's the fastest man alive. And I was like, who's that? They're like, Usain Bolt. I was like, what? <laughs> Who? What? I didn't even know my grandma's last name was Bolt. Like it was all very confusing. Anyway, so uh, that works rule and the elimination of a whole bunch of uh, services and programs for kids, like, did, you know, I really, there was a moment where I, I thought that that might be something that I would do, is, like, try to pursue an athletics career. That ended that. Um, it's okay. I'm still happy. Um, and and then later on, like, I currently work at QP3903. We just had the lo longest academic strike ever at York University. It's not fun. I work as a staff rep, a staff rep, and so uh, that means I I see workers on their worst days, like the worst days that they have, and I try to offer as much support as I can. And I've also previous to that worked at Steelworkers National, which um, the difference between an academic union and uh, uh, like. Uh, you know, in the trenches, working class steel workers union is massive. And uh, I, the, the amount of support that is needed for people who get hurt on the jobs, I, I can't tell you what a, a distressing but also really inspiring uh, to work with workers who are, are fighting day in and day out while also mourning people who they've lost in their shop. It's really tough. 
yeah the um the work to rule also impacted me I would say probably radicalized me because I was um involved in the student newspaper in grade nine which is like a grade nine newspaper is like obviously shit but we had a latin name so we thought we were better than everyone else the oh newspaper God. was called the Omnia Extares, which That's means let it all hang out. I didn't name it, but we were very proud of this. And uh, really we went on, embarrassing. the, the teachers <laughs> went on work to rule, and then a teacher scabbed and let the newspaper keep going. And oh. at the same, yeah, <laughs> right? And, and, and we, we were smart enough to be like, whoa, I think that guy's a scab, and I'm not going to name him, but I'd like to. Why not? Um... Because I'm not going to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he also kind of shacked up with the students. So, I mean, like, there's, like, other reasons to, you That know. makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I think it was, anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Um, there's an edit moment. Mm. Oh, no, no, that'll be in. <laughs> that'll be in. And you'll have to all listen to it to hear it. And so, and so the newspaper's going on, but they're scabbing. And I, and I like, as a grade nine, I'm, like, 13 years old. I want to be a fucking reporter. And I can't work for my newspaper because I know that they're scabbing. And at the same time, there was this interesting whisper campaign that happened throughout the uh, Halton School Board, the Halton Catholic School Board. So I was in Milton, Ontario for high school. And the whisper campaign, because like, there was no fucking social media, right? There was no internet, unless you're in the military or you're a serious nerd. And um, we kind of heard the idea that we were going to go on uniform strike to support our teachers. And so we were just going to show up one day and not wear our uniforms, which is... Not radical <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> Except you get kicked out of school for not wearing a uniform. And just overnight, the entire school showed up not wearing a uniform. One mm. day. Just the, the rumor mill worked so well. And so it was this incredible collective action that teachers had been, been fighting with the Harris government for years. And the first time we were able to make news in Oakville, Burlington, Milton was a bunch of Catholic high school kids didn't wear their uniforms to school. Big fucking deal. But it actually was like, whoa, we have collective power. Now, I'm smarter than that now. I know collective power isn't just what we wear necessarily, but if that's what you have, that's what you have. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a lot of echoes right now to the Harris era in Ontario. And there's a lot of echoes, I think, as well, of the youth action that you know a lot of us in this room are probably involved in because the youth right now are, like, kicking ass, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I don't know if there's anyone in this room who's, like, under 19 years old. Is there anyone? 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 No way. Well, I mean, I don't know why there's no beer then. <laughs> we should be drinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, the actions that, that the that young people are doing uh, are really basic. They are confronting power. And they are kind of the baseline, I think, for anybody who's involved in collective action or looking at collective action in Ontario should be looking at how young people are organized in the province of Ontario and saying, okay, that is collective action, but what does it look like when we have economic power as workers, mm -hmm. which is the foundation of collective worker power of strikes or of work to rule or whatever you want to call it and the government knows that so like i have a prediction we have a prediction i think we've made this prediction before right the government of ontario very likely within the next three years of their reign of terror <laughs> the guillotine's coming out <laughs> Don't talk about guillotines, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke, Charlie Angus. <laughs> Fucking relax. <laughs> it's a sensitive topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> over the next three years of their reign of terror are very likely to, to um, attack the right of unions to have a closed shop. They're very likely to try to implement 
right to work legislation. And is there anyone, don't be shy, who doesn't know what that means, right to work legislation? Oh, look, there is a phantom hand. I'm just going to explain it. <laughs> so meaning that, uh, you know, right now when you are part of a union, it's kind of like, you know, the majority rules when you vote to be a part of a union. Everyone is either a part of the union or not. And so whether you wanted to be a part of that union, if you voted against it, you are still going to get your health benefits. Fuck you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but what they are very likely to do is implement a type of legislation that if you're a student, you might know something about this already. Implement a type of legislation where if you don't want to be a part of the union, you don't have to pay into the union. It doesn't necessarily mean you won't benefit from anything the union's doing, because the union is still fighting on behalf of all workers. But it does mean the union isn't going to get union dues necessarily from everybody. And that's going to affect the type of services that they are able to provide to the workers, to whatever shop that they're a part of. And that is meant to decimate the power of a union, uh, to do all the things that a union does, not just for the workers in whatever shop that they're working in, uh, but also for society as a whole. It's meant to impact the type of influence that a progressive union can have on the province of Ontario. Yeah, and so tonight we were asked to think a little bit about the connections between now and 100 years ago and the Winnipeg General Strike. And of course, when, when the Winnipeg General Strike happened, there was, not, there was not closed shop unionism. There was not the right to unionize in the way that exists now. The RAND formula, which, which created sh closed shop unions in Canada, was, was, was passed in 1945, <laughs> if I'm not wrong. Um, and that was after a massive uh, strike at the at the Ford Motor Plant in uh, in Windsor, Ontario. And so the Winnipeg General Strike was this really unbelievable moment where 30,000 at least workers in Winnipeg went on general strike for several weeks. They did their best to shut off the utilities. They, uh, the <laughs> we were re re reading up on, we we're boning up on this a little bit today. <laughs> um, the police went on strike with them, but then the strike committee decided to let the police be police so that they weren't going to have martial law declared on them, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, a tactic that, I'm, I don't know, maybe that's the reason why police suck now. Um, <laughs> that and a whole host of other reasons. Well, of course, the whole thing was broken <laughs> up by the, by the, by the mounted police, so police... Spider-Man versus Spider-Man, right? It's all the same people. Wow, okay. I had to do that just because Sandy... My favorite superhero is Spider-Man. <laughs> she just found out, so let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> and, so, um, and so the Winnipeg General Strike is, is this flashpoint in, in, in labor relations in Canada because uh, from collective action from people in Winnipeg who are fighting a, a, si a committee of employers. So the, the employers formed what was de facto a bargaining committee across industry. And there's a lot of tensions because you had veterans coming back from World War I. They were expecting to have jobs. Jobs had been taken by immigrants and by women. And so there's some tensions. But the strike organizers were able to reach across racial tensions and the tensions that, that were created by women working and, and actually create this strike situation. And the strike was important for a whole bunch of reasons, but people went on solidarity strike, right? When, the, when, uh, when transit or trolley operators in Winnipeg were harassed, TTC workers in, tr in Toronto walked off the job, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's collective action like that that, you know, we don't actually hear about. Like, how many people know or knew about the Winnipeg general strike in 2017, right? Not many people. I mean, mm -hmm. in 2019, we're all hearing about it now, right? 
Um, and, but, the, but the Winnipeg general strike was also really important in, in a context of, of, a, of a colonial Canada that was coming to life as modern Canada, right? World War I was this moment where, where Canadians were like, we are out of our mom's fucking colonial basement and we are living non-colonial lives in Canada, right? Because Britain's over there and now we are Canadians. And at the time, like how many people died in World War I? I don't War agree I? with that. <laughs> I said they were like that. I'm yeah, not okay, saying it yeah. is that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, and and 66,000 people died, right? For a population of 6 million people, 66,600 and 66,066, something like this. There's a lot of sixes. A lot of numbers. sixes. Um, were murdered in, in World War One. And, and what was World War One? It was an imperial war that was not fighting an evil, but it was just like rich men sending poor men off to, to, to slaughter each other and die, mm -hmm. right? We have lost that memory. Right? World War Two was one of these wars where there were a good side and a bad side, and it made things much more clean and easy to... To, to justify war. The reason why I'm talking about the war is because uh, the general strikes started organizing in 1919 at the beginning of the year. Just before that, a block, a couple blocks from where I live in Quebec City, there were riots against conscription because, because Quebecers were opposed to conscription. And they called in the military against conscription riots in Quebec City. And they murdered five people in Quebec City for people refusing to actually go to war on behalf of, of of, uh, of England. And there was, of course, a French-English divide, and the people who pulled the trigger were like Nova Scotian soldiers brought into Quebec City to, to murder. And this is the violent process that helps to manufacture what, what Canadian, white Canadian Christian identity would become for the rest of Canada. And so where does labor relations sit in all of this? Well, it's laborers are supposed to be quiet, you're supposed to be passive, you're supposed to listen to your bosses, and you're supposed to take it. And the Winnipeg general strike has been so important because it reminds us that we aren't passive and we shouldn't take it and we should be resisting. But we have a long distance between that mentality and where we are today. Mm -hmm. Because arguably, things are, are bad. They are getting worse. And if our power is in our work, I mean, I'm not sure at what point we need to start shutting down industries are shutting down our workplaces, but we certainly haven't seen, like there hasn't been a, a strike yet against Ford, has there? Well, there was a strike called on May 1st by a Toronto city councilor. Oh yeah, Kristen, such vision, right? <laughs> there was a, 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 a Toronto city councilor who was like, May 1st, we're gonna strike and we're gonna, it's like, you're a management. Yeah, that's not how it works. <laughs> and so, and that's like one of the things that is uh, really, impactful and useful that we can learn from the Winnipeg general strike is the way that people organized on the ground and also the way that people organized across difference, which was really important. And at a time like right now where it's like, oh, white supremacy is having its second, you know, second wind, <laughs> yay. It's like really, really important for us to figure out how to organize across difference. Because it may seem like we're doing that already. It's like maybe you have a diverse workplace and it's like, okay, so what do you mean? Like everybody's part of the union. But people are organized in all sorts of different ways. People are organized in, their, and I mean organized not in like the union sense, but in the general sense. People are organized at work. They're organized at their schools. They're organized at where their kids go to daycare, where their kids, you know, uh, go to circus school or For whatever. Example. And so there's all sorts of different ways that people can 
um, can organize across difference. Like you can uh, you can organize in a church, you can organize in a mosque, you can organize in all sorts of different ways that people feel connected to something in their lives. And I would argue that we don't do that well enough right now. And that is part of the reason where we're why we're at where we're at, and we have got to get better at doing that. And we have to get better at identifying it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is where the real the real struggle is, especially for labor leadership. Like, I don't know how many people in this room is a member of a union executive. A couple, very nice, and then, and so it's very difficult because that's not that's not everybody, right? Like, we have to figure out how to influence leadership to see that we are ignoring certain sectors of our membership or our membership doesn't even have certain people among it and then whose fault is that and can we fix that or is it just the way that the industry works but the Winnipeg general strike also happened at a time where people were considering organizing in the one big union model mm -hmm. right where you where you have one union and you organize across across industries right and it works in Winnipeg at that time it worked in Winnipeg at that time because you had the employers operating together, right? The employers created a group, and so it didn't matter if you're a textile worker or a public sector worker, or you're, you're plugging phones or whatever the fuck women did at the time. Um, I mean, for example, uh, you were able to come together and, and, and act in collective action. And there's still some places where you can see that collective action. In Quebec, they still negotiate with the government in the common front negotiations. And so the common front negotiations bring together workers in the public sector of all of the unions, so the two major federations, the CSN, the FTQ, and then uh, other unions uh, that are part of the common front that aren't necessarily part of those organizations. And they're able to negotiate with the government and then call days of strike, which is what happened in the last common front negotiations in 2016, I believe, where these days of strike meant that the school was on strike, the hospital was on strike, and the social services were on strike. And because of essential services, life could not continue as normal. And so they're able to, at least because of the structural ways that, that the labor movement in Quebec has, has continued to work, they're able to at least go across sector in the, in the public sector. The private sector kind of does that in the construction industry in Quebec, and um, that's kind of a different, uh, different story. But trying to identify how to organize across difference. I think that when we, when we look at the rise of the far right, the only way we can stop the rise of the far right is by organizing people where they are, and the primary location for that is in their workplace. And we do not talk about that enough. Mm -hmm. There's not enough strategic thinking about how do we fight the far... Because people are like, oh my God, the far right. It's, it's like... I'm not going to get too Game of Thrones about this, but it's a little fucking White Walker, right? It's like, they're just coming. We can't do anything. It's like, but here's some dragon glass. Like, no, we don't have enough. We can mine that shit. No, we don't have enough time because oh we God, only have one season, right? The perfect analogy. And then the, the people of color at the front lines, and they're all about to die. <laughs> we can't let that go down. Don't let the black women die. I mean, don't put Daenerys in charge. Oh, I didn't say that was your fault. What? I think you're like, oh. No, nothing. <laughs> No, but, but this is, the, you've got these people coming towards you. It's, it's like this inevitable thing. You don't know how to fight them, right? Nora and hasn't seen the last episode. Yeah, do not, no spoilers or anything yeah. like that. I know. I had to get ready for today's <laughs> show, which is why I couldn't watch it last night, and I had a soccer game. Um, and so when we, when we talk about the rise of the far right as being tied to nothing, and the location for that fight is tied to nowhere, we remove 
the structures that we do have. And the primary structure is the labor movement. With all of its problems, with all of its embedded racism, with all of its embedded oppression, with all of its embedded sexism, right? Because we fucking know that's all there. Mm -hmm. So how do we convince labor leadership and how do we mobilize at the rank and file to organize, to fight the far right, fight the right, fight for better working conditions. I mean, just fight, 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 fight. I mean, a fucking cheerleader up here, right? But I mean, this is where it gets very difficult because then you get people who are like, eh, we don't want to fight all the time. We want to fight for something, right? It's like, fuck. <laughs> but this is what was happening uh, at the time of the Winnipeg general strike. Like, people weren't just fighting for uh, conditions specific to their jobs. They were fighting for a minimum wage. They were fighting for the right to organize. And I think that it's kind of like shitty that we're in such a moment that is analogous to that moment but you know the the government like we're making this prediction of uh union shops being attacked not out of nowhere like they've they've done that they've done version 1.0 at student unions where they're 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 trying to see what it'll what it'll do to student unions if not everybody has to pay into the student union organization which is a pr progressive organization that is especially in Canada a really large marker of social change and, uh, and, and brings forth a whole bunch of progressive policy in this country. Um, they're doing that. Uh, I don't have to tell anybody in this room, I hope, that there is not a living wage that's the minimum anywhere in this country. And uh, that's something that clearly people have been fighting for and making huge inroads on, on that fight so much so that the last government was forced to make changes to the minimum wage. Was it a living wage? No, it wasn't. Should that campaign have gone farther? Maybe it could have. I don't know. Um, but but this government now, the Ford government, has responded uh, to say, well, we're not going to go any farther than 14, and they might do something that ends up rolling things back. I wouldn't be surprised. And so that's we're at a really kind of similar moment where it is really crucial unions uh, to not just think it's it's so easy in a union you know to get to just think about what is happening in the shop like as I said like people come to to me on their worst days it's it's really hard right to think beyond what's happening to someone individually in their jobs but like we must because all of that is a part of the broader social system and what it makes possible um, in a in a one-on-one -on -one interaction with somebody's boss, like could those things, if if the job wasn't so precarious, would there be as many people in my office where I represent academic workers? Probably not. If the job wasn't so dangerous when I worked at Steel, uh, would it be so desperate? The small changes that people wanted to make to their collective agreements, probably not. So it's so much. It's so much more important for us to just, as for people who are end up being a union leadership or labor leaders, to make sure that there's some time where folks are focusing on the bigger picture, especially in a government like this, that where they know what they're doing. They're doing as much as they can to change as much as they can and to change it irrevocably so that by the time they're out, the rollbacks aren't going to be that um, aren't going to unseed or un you know bleh, change what the, that's an edit is, isn't going to um, uh, do away with all the things that they've put in place. Yeah, and so I guess with the remaining time that we have doing this, and you should all be thinking about those questions because you know the Q and A is where we can really have a conversation. Yeah. 
totally. Um, <laughs> I guess we probably should come up with some solutions, right? Because that's why they pay us so much money. <laughs> we aren't, we aren't paid. We ain't paid. No, no, but, but um, you could pass a hat for us if you need no, no. um then i'll get a real gold one of these <laughs> <laughs> no i won't um the, so the, the solutions i i think part of the the solutions lie in how we conceive of collection collective action and and recognizing that there's a generational difference in how we understand collective organizing that there are there is a there's a whole generation two generations now that has that it really is the victim of neoliberalism that really has no sense of that community support that the welfare state depended on to operate and there's a whole two or three generations of people who remember a world where you help each other <laughs> right where you're part of social groups, you're part of community organizations, or you set up, I mean, the number of people I know in Quebec City who spent the 1970s setting up guerrilla childcare centers. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it, and I can't even imagine doing that now. Like, I'm super radical, and I still have no fucking idea how that would be done, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've really, there's been a real break in that knowledge and that, that reality, and so we have a situation. Um, one of the pet peeves I have, I don't think we've ever talked about this, so this might be very fun. Mm. Um, one of the pet peeves I have is um, how the Women's March in Canada organized itself. Oh, we talked about this. Oh, we talked about this. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so the Women's March, which is great, and anyone involved with the Women's March, I'm, I'm not slagging off their work, but the, the idea that the success is in a demonstration is what it became. Mm -hmm. And we organized... I mean, fuck, I had a whole bunch of criticisms. I mean, like, it was between December 20th and December 29th. Is There's December. January 20th, January 29th is, is the time that these marches are organized, right? And the first one was 2017, December 20th, January 20th, if I'm not wrong, right? And then what happened nine days later in Canada? The shooting at the Quebec City Mosque, right? I was actually in Ottawa that night. Um, and it was actually Sandy who told me about it. Um, the year after, there was another women's march that was organized in Canada. And it was like the first annual reminder of Donald Trump doing some shit. Right? <laughs> this is what the organizing was for, right? And I'm like, okay, so we just had this shooting that left six women widowed. That, that left... 17 kids orphaned, like with tremendous impacts directly on women. And there's no idea in Canada to maybe shift the Women's March to talk instead about the rise of the far right, Islamophobic violence, hate crimes, feeling safe in your place of worship, you know, all of these things. And you can talk in Quebec City being, being racialized in an overwhelmingly white city, how difficult it is to wear a hijab in Quebec City, like on and on and on of the issues. But we're too orient toward, oriented towards Donald Trump. And it's like, you know, we're going to show our outrage towards Donald Trump. And it's good enough because we don't have very much. And as I say, people doing that organizing work, that's what, that's what we reach to is those events because that's what we have. But unless we're causing economic disruption with our events, we're not going to change Doug Ford's opinion, Andrew Scheer's opinion, or Justin Trudeau's opinion, right? It, we might have a demonstration for the point of showing that we're popular. We might have a demonstration as a street party, or we might have a demonstration to mark an important day, like um, March uh, 8th, 
for example. But these have become the end goal rather than something to just show the support that we have. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where, Sandy, like your experience at Black Lives Matter is so critical because every one of your events forced Torontonians out of business as usual mm -hmm. to confront the injustices that you were trying to raise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was intentional. Like we were having these conversations about not wanting to just have a protest to show people that we were upset because people knew that we were upset. And we didn't want to solely have a place where people could come together to to mourn, although that was always part of the part of the goal of what we were doing with, with anything that we organized. But we wanted to create something where we could show how every single one of our actions could be different, how they could um, escalate, how they could involve everyone from uh, different um, identities to kids, to parents, to grandparents, uh, to people who couldn't physically be there. And we wanted to show what it would look like to be safe, but also take over a highway. Be safe, but also do an occupation. Um, all of those things, and, and we thought like really, I think people think that this type of stuff can be easy, like it's easy to just throw an event. The easiest thing that we did was pride, <laughs> which might sound, that might not be intuitive but it was really easy. The the other everything else was like the most difficult thing ever because we were we were we really had to think about safety and exactly how this was going to impact decision makers. And I hope that we um like that there is a an effect in in that it inspires other I think it already has actually, but um inspires other movements to to start thinking about those things because there's a way that like we know what we were doing it was it was it's like spectacle organizing you're you're organizing a spectacle in order to force something to change it's uh it's 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 a specific type of of action and um if you are able to get thousands of people out on the street like for a women's march you might as well cause a spectacle and get some shit out of it <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's not easy like that takes so much energy to get that many people out there. You might as well get some shit out of it. And I, I do think that we, like the, the generation that we're in right now, for some reason, so much of our go-to is just like, okay, so we have to, we have to show that we're against this by, by making a show that we're against this instead of what else, what can we build through that action, which is, I don't know why that's happening, but I, I'm hoping that, you know, part of doing this type of stuff is that we can shift it because I like think of the, the stuff that um, our grandparents and so on had to do. Like, I learned this thing about my grandmother at her funeral because I come from this, like, really stoic Jamaican family where <laughs> we don't really talk about history. And so my grandmother, uh, at, the f at the funeral, my uh, someone from my family is talking about how my grandmother organized... Uh, libraries on wheels in in Jamaica uh, when she was younger and to me like that is such a radical thing to to think to yourself there's not enough books in my community kids don't have enough uh, to read how can I get a bunch of people 
to get a bunch of materials together so that we can give away these materials for free and hopefully they'll give them back. And we'll put it on a rolling vehicle like, and have it go out. Like, what an idea. And, you know, my, my family's from a rural place. Like, the, and she made it happen, right? Like, and we often, uh, as like this generation, very broadly speaking, obviously, <laughs> uh, this generation, like our generation of organizers, it's, it, we think everything is so difficult, but we also d don't necessarily try all the time. And I'm hoping that part of like even just doing this podcast, like what we're doing is trying to tell people, I mean, you might as well, the worst thing that can happen is like your library doesn't get off the ground. And then you can try again in another way. Yeah, move to well, toys. Move to Canada. I didn't mean move. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Switch to something else. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the, the the best actions that I I always think of in my mind is when I was a student at Ryerson, and I I unfortunately can't take almost any credit for this, um, but we were we were fighting to close the street that ran right through Ryerson's campus, and it was a dangerous street, and people got hit on it or whatever. And one of the actions that we decided to do we broadly speaking, although I was around, um, was to purchase like a fucking ton of sod. And we covered the street with grass. And we're like, it's hilarious. good morning, students. Your street's covered in grass. <laughs> and it was so effective because it let people see what the street would look like closed. I mean, like it's, that was super radical from one perspective and super not radical at all because we're just covering a road with sod but it was radical because it was illegal they were, we were threatened with um vandalism and cleanup charges from the police if we didn't get rid of the sod by a certain time people had bottles thrown at their heads by delivery trucks because they wanted to use the street and uh and students you know because they had like why the fuck would they think that there'd be grass on the street you know they walk onto campus and they're like it's eight in the morning and they're like i hate ryerson so fucking much and you have to be like hey you know you shake their head and you're like look up and you're just like you know, a rainbow and fucking hula hoops and <laughs> and soccer balls and all of these things were like play on the grass and everyone did. And it was it was a moment in a many, many year fight to get that damn street closed where I think that was the tipping point for the administration to go, wait a minute, we can turn this into a beautiful thing and get on board and then fight the city to get it done. And of course, the street's now been closed for seven or eight years, right? It was a huge victory that students had, had fought for 25 years to get this fucking street closed. And we don't think about those radical activities because I think we're, we're, we collectively, I think we're quite afraid of the state. Mm -hmm. I think we're really afraid of what the state will do to us. We're afraid of being sued. We're afraid of uh, being arrested. We're afraid of uh, we're afraid of getting yelled at. Like no one wants to get yelled at, right? That I fucking sucks, that. right? I don't mind it. It's okay. Well, <laughs> the second that you get yelled at and you're like, "This has no power over me," is like you transcend it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's a very important qualification. There was a time where I was afraid of being yelled at. That time is no longer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, but you can only go through that by actually participating in these actions. I yeah. mean, we are at the anniversary. This is something we wanted to talk about the podcast this week, but we ran the, the time, and so now we can talk about it now. But this is the anniversary of the occupation of the Gardner Expressway in 2009. Mm -hmm. A 10 year, 10 years? 10 years. What? Yeah, 10 years. 
Um, and so this was an event where the Tamil community in Toronto had been protesting, 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 trying to get the federal government to say something about the genocide happening uh, in Tamil Elam in Sri Lanka. And the, the gardener was not act number one, right? Act number one was, let's put 30,000 people at Queen's Park. Mm -hmm. And then act number two was like, let's do it again. And let's mm -hmm. do it again. And so there had been many protests at Queen's Park of, of, of easily 20,000, 30,000 people. Just massive, massive protests. Yeah. And one of these protests walked south from Queen's Park. And, <laughs> I mean, I was there at the moment that they walked onto Queen's Park, that we walked onto Queen's Park. And it was literally like the cops are there with their bikes. They're like, don't go past these bikes. And the, the front is like, I if we don't go past these bikes, like there's a lot of people behind me. They're just gonna step on me. So like, you know, I'm just gonna keep going with the, the flow here. It was like, oh, we're on the gardener. Oh, traffic stopped. Oh, we have a massive occupation of one of the busiest uh, highways in in Canada. Mm -hmm. And the police didn't shut it down. No one was arrested that evening. They that's not true. They were. Yeah. What well, was shut down by? I mean, like after at the end, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, they did. They did focus on the white folks, though, to, to arrest. But that's another story. Ask oh, us about it later. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Actually, I got text being like, I just saw you on the front page of the Toronto Star getting arrested. I was like, that was not me. I had to go to the bathroom it was so bad that my solidarity ended at hour like 10 because I thought <laughs> I was going to die. <laughs> um, so yeah. I actually, yeah, I missed the breakup of, of the event. But um, but the demand was to get the government to pay attention to this issue. And, uh, you know, it didn't get met that night because they were trying to get, they were originally was trying to get um, Michael Ignatieff, I think, was the one that took the phone call. They were mm -hmm. trying to get, um, to have a conversation with the government, which, of course, was not going to talk to them at the time, as Stephen Harper. Um, but that civil disobedience was so important, and, um, and it gave confidence. It built the confidence of the folks doing that action to see people power can actually take over something that seems completely impossible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it like they i think it's important to mention that they they did win in the end they did change the 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 way that the canadian government was uh, approaching uh this the horrendous war crimes that were happening in tamil Elam. um and it changed the people who were there like i was i will tell you like very honestly that had i not been on the gardner expressway that night like i don't know if we would have done the allen road blockade that Black Lives Matter did later and um, the like it changed me to know that I could do it that it could be done safely um, that I learned what happened when people were arrested and how the police operate so I was like mm, writing some notes down here so that I know about it like what to do in the future and it changed my confidence um, and it allowed me it, it made me understand how crucial a an action like that was because at that time I lived, if you're familiar with Toronto, I lived very close to the U.S. consulate, um, which is on this big boulevard type street, University Avenue. And uh, the, the, the Tamil protests were happening at Queens Park, but they were also happening overnight outside the U.S. consulate. So I would go to work, there would be um, probably anywhere between 50 to 250 Tamil people on the street doing a, like a blockade of University Avenue. They would come home, still there, lots of kids, like grandparents, like everybody that you could imagine. And that was happening every day and the news was not paying attention to any of it. And then there was this, this blockade on Mother's Day in 2009 and it finally met the news. Was the news sympathetic? Absolutely not. They were horrendous. But it was the first time that 
the news was actually mentioning that a genocide was happening when people had been on the street for weeks. And slowly, you know, because once now they're finally having this, this on the news, they, they have to interview people who were there. They have to talk to them. And those people got to insert the issue, the real issue of the war crimes into the Canadian media. And it, like, the public perception, you could watch it happen. And I encourage you to, if you can find some of the newscasts from 2009, it is so instructive. It changed public opinion. It changed the opinion of the media, who initially, like, the message was, oh, my God, it's Mother's Day, and people just want to get home to their mothers and to give them flowers. And how, how dare these people, these brown people, take over the Gardner Expressway? Disgusting. And, and then, it, you know, people started to learn, oh, there's a genocide. Like, using the word genocide, talking about the war crimes, it was effective. And that action changed what I thought was possible and changed what I'm sure a lot of people thought were possi was possible. Um, and it taught me something about urgency and what we can do uh, in a moment of urgency and what we can inspire in a mo moment of urgency and how we can shift the conversation in a moment of urgency. And I think, you know, to bring it back to the labor movement and where we're at today, there's a lot of lessons to be learned um, in, you know, we're in like an anniversary month, anniversary of... Uh, of the Winnipeg general strike and in the anniversary of uh, the Tamil uprising in 2009 in Toronto. Yeah, and so, I mean, I guess when we're organizing in, in whatever spaces that we're organizing in, we have to look around the table. Who is there? Who is not there? If you're white, are you taking up all the space? Or are you taking up too much space? Or maybe just try one night to take up no space and see what happens. And if the whole thing collapses, then go back to taking up a little bit of space and see if that works. But it's not going to collapse. <laughs> like we we have to look the, the 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 politic that touches people the most, and a lot of times it's not going to be the politic that I think touches people the most because my perspective is very much influenced, obviously, by who I am and where I'm socially located. And so creating these spaces for people to come together and to make recommendations or to make suggestions or to hear about international experiences, right? A lot of our organizing groups are going to have a lot of people with experiences of doing extraordinarily radical shit in other countries. And it's like, okay, can we do that? Can we learn from that? And sometimes you're going to have people be like, I have a line on a car and we can bring the car onto campus and we can smash the car against high tuition fees, for example. And you can go that's not a good suggestion. <laughs> and they can go, oh, well, maybe we'll just smash the car, right? That's what happens when you organize with engineers, right? <laughs> they just want to smash it, right, stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so sometimes they'll have those moments, right? Or, or the guy that wanted to skydive for lower tuition fees because he was going lower, right? The guy. I, know, I hope he listens. I know that. Do you know he might, yeah. 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 Well, I know someone connected to him listens a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. Yep. Anyway. A friend of his is right here. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> Anyway, um, but, but, you know, there's going to be, like, suggestions that are off the wall or ridiculous or impossible, but it's, like, just hold them together and, and think about them. But try to not default to the same old, same old, because we have been given a box in which to organize. It is ahistorical. It ignores all of the radical action that's happened before us. It, it, it ignores what it took for Canada to have... Uh, no abortion law to allow us to be able to have abortions, right? It ignores the struggle that uh, it took to get 
uh, maternity leave, which was also a labor struggle that you know, was crystallized in the strike of, uh, of, uh, of CUPW workers, of postal workers, but had been fought for years and years and years and years by of, of, of mostly folks within the women's movement. But there were radical actions that needed to be happen needed to happen to ha to 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 make those come uh, to, to to life. And of course, the 1970s, the 1960s, full of radical stories that we younger people need to learn, that older people need to try and impart. And when we are working together and we're working from different perspectives, I mean, we have the solutions. We just need to create those spaces for us to have these discussions and for those solutions to come out. And for someone to say, well, maybe we won't smash the car, but maybe we'll, I don't know, put it on a highway and stop traffic. I mean, we weren't that radical back then, so no one suggested <laughs> that. We were just like, no, we're not smashing. Well, actually, I was really in favor of smashing the car, so I was really pissed that I lost that debate. But you know what? <laughs> I went back to the meeting after because that's what you do, right? You, you leave your ego at the door, and you're like, well, I think I was right. That would have been sweet, but no one's smashing a car on campus today. <laughs> For example. For example. So that's the talk. That's the talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.